Thank you. Brilliant to be with you, and uh, if you're joining us online, great to have you with us. Um, yes, yeah, so this is our uh, series at the moment called uh, Perspectives, which is uh, an opportunity for those of us who speak to speak about something that's on our hearts, as long as it's in the Bible as well, um, to speak about subjects that perhaps don't fit into any other series, just to, just to kind of catch us up as a church with what the Lord's speaking to us about. So I um, have the privilege to speak today, and I was really wrestling with what to, to speak on, and I felt to, drawn to something I've been thinking about for a few years, actually, which is this whole idea that God creates with His voice. He, he is a creative being who creates with his voice. And he created the universe, it says, uh, by speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So the, many other uh, religions will paint this picture of God creating in different ways, or God's creating in different ways. But, but the Judeo-Christian tradition is very clear. God creates with his voice. He speaks into nothingness and creates out of nothing. It's a very kind of clear um, uh, understanding from Genesis. And we see right the way through Genesis, this picture is painted of God creating with his voice. Everything comes from the power of his voice. And then it gets to the point of the pinnacle of creation. He says, let us make man in our image, male and female. He created them. And so he created us to be like him. We're created in God's image. And so in the same way, our voices have creative power. That's the thing I've been wrestling with. We have been made in God's image, and so our voices have creative power like God does. That's one of the ways that we're in his image. And I've been thinking about this for, for a while because I think it's got... I probably haven't really thought enough, uh, deeply enough about it in, in my life, I think. You know, growing up as a, as a, uh, a kid, my, I would, you know, kids would say mean things to me at school... I mean, not all of them, but, you know, some, you know, well, okay, lots of them would say, no. <laughs> some of them would say mean things to me, and I would come home, and, you know, I'd see my mum, and mom, I'd say, mum, you know, they said this and that, and she would say, oh, Simon, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And even at six, I thought, I don't know, I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, I'm not sure it's true that sticks that the words will never hurt me. Because I realized even at that young age, words are incredibly powerful. In fact, sometimes the broken bone heals a lot quicker than the words that are associated with the broken bone or that are around, around the uh, wounds that have been done to us. Words are incredibly powerful. Words are incredibly powerful to destroy. And yet also words are incredibly powerful to bring life. I love you. We're in this together. You're welcome here. It's so good to see you. And words have life, don't they? They have life. And so many lives, actually, I think have been lost as people have ended their lives because they never heard the words that they needed to hear or the words were spoken and they couldn't quite hear them. Words have power to bring death, but also to bring life. And the one of the movies I've enjoyed most this year is uh, A Quiet Place, which um, is not for the faint of heart, and Caroline hasn't seen it, um, because it's not her kind of thing. Um, but you're not faint of heart, my love. Let's talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit squeamish for those who are squeamish. And uh, the whole premise is that aliens have landed on Earth, which I think is you know, basically the, the plot of every great movie. Um, aren't I right, ladies? Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and aliens have landed, and they're incredibly uh, 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 vicious, but also they, they are blind. So they can't see, but they have incredible hearing. And the, basically, if you want to survive, uh, as the humans that survive are those that are, are, are incredibly quiet. They're just silent. And, and that's the name of the movie, and the whole story is, is a, around that thing. Uh, you know, as I was reflecting on it, though, I think it's not too far from the truth. Because I think there is a demonic strategy going on on the planet to silence people. <laughs> to silence, in particular, those who want to speak the truth. Those who want to speak the truth, and particularly, as we understand it, Christ has given us the truth and has called us the salt and light of the earth. I believe there's a demonic strategy to silence the church. And you can feel it everywhere. You can feel this spirit of intimidation that wants to silence people from speaking out that wants to silence people in their marketplace, that wants to silence people uh, uh, even on this platform, that wants to silence people from speaking out that which they believe God has revealed. Truth and words have power. They have power to change things. They have power to destroy, but they also have power to bring life. And I don't think it's actually even just Christians who are feeling this. I think everyone's feeling it. <laughs> there is a spirit of intimidation that means that anyone who differs from the kind of politically correct worldview at the moment feels like they have to keep their mouth shut. Anyone else relating to what I'm saying? You can feel it everywhere, can't you? You can see it on the news as someone lifts their head and says something that kind of differs from a, a current prevailing worldview. They get absolutely hammered, even sometimes physically assaulted as a result of it. There's something about silence that the enemy is wanting to bring on the planet to shut people down because he knows that words that are spoken that are true have power. And some of us, even in this room, you have been silenced from the, from the, the very beginning of your lives. I had a picture as I was praying that of, of hands, adult hands around a child's neck. And some of you may even have experienced that as children, physically or maybe emotionally or spiritually. You have been silenced. And your voice has never been able to come out, really. You've never really been able to give what's on the inside because of you, you've been silenced. Others, you know, you're silenced because of the fear of persecution. Uh, and you perhaps used to be bold, but now you feel, gosh, I don't know what's going to happen to me if I speak out on some of these subjects. Some of you are silenced just through insecurity. That was my story. Many of you will know my story. I, I was silenced because of my own fears and inadequacies and insecurities and and an embarrassment of standing out and sticking my head up and speaking what I felt God had given me to say. We can be silenced for all different reasons. Actually, the reason really doesn't matter. What the enemy wants to do is get you to shut your mouth, get you to stop speaking what God has put in your heart to bring. So I want to talk about breaking the silence. What does it look like for us as believers, as followers of Christ? And if you're not uh, yet a Christian here and you're with us, what does it look like for people to stand up and speak into this overwhelming fear, feeling of intimidation and fear and silence that's come upon, I think, not just our nation, but you can feel it coming on the world? Uh, a few things, a few thoughts. The first is this. You are not alone. <laughs> you are not alone. You are not alone because... What I mean is this, that when God feels like the world is going to hell, he has a typical strategy, and this is what it is. He picks out a few men or women and says, speak. <laughs> he picks out people and says, speak. And he's done it throughout history. Look at, look at Isaiah at 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, here am I, send me. <laughs> 
Again and again through history, biblical history, but also the history of the church, you see the same pattern going. When the world's going to hell, when all is, going, when all is getting lost, God will pick out a few men and women and say, now speak. Now speak. You see it uh, 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 again in Exodus, when Moses is picked out as one to save the people. The same picture comes again and again. The point is this, though, that very often the people that God calls to speak do not feel able to speak. That's the other theme that you see. This is what Moses says. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Exodus 4, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get all tangled. <laughs> Love that translation. But you can relate to it. Anyone can relate to that? I get tongue-tied and my words get all tangled. This is like the guy who's going to, he's got the future salvation of the earth in his hands. I mean, what a guy. Why pick him? He's like, I, I agree. Don't pick me. God says, speak. Speak. Look at Paul, one of the greatest apostles. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Paul has got a message. He's one of the few who've understood the message of Christ. And he's declaring it. But the intimidation was so thick around him that the Lord literally has to appear to him in the night and say, do not be silent. Keep on speaking. You are not alone. You are not alone. And the record of history shows that there are men and women throughout history, through biblical history and church history, who God has picked out like you. They had the words for their day you've got the words for your day. So, so whether, you've got a, whether you're called to speak on the steps of parliament or the steps of your school, whether you're called to speak to the nation or to your neighbor, whether you're called to, to speak on TV or in front of your TV, sitting in your lounge, whether you're called to speak on a platform like this to hundreds or the platform of the train station to just one, you're not on your own. You are not on your own. There are people who have gone before you and they've faced intimidation from the inside and from the outside. You are not alone. And they overcame. And this is what I love the story of Richard Vernbrandt. I've read it to you before, but I'll read it again because I love it so much. He was one of the early uh, Romanian pastors who uh, stood when the communists were overrunning uh, Eastern Europe. And he led the underground churches for many years. And this is from his book, Tortured for Christ. The communists convened a congress of all Christian bodies in our parliament building. There were 4,000 priests, pastors, and ministers of all denominations. And these men of God chose Joseph Stalin as the president of the Congress. At the same time that he was president of the world movement of the godless and a mass murder of Christians, they chose him. One after the other, bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity are fundamentally the same and could coexist. One minister after another said words of praise towards communism and assured the new government of the loyalty of the church. My, my wife and I were present at this congress. Sabina, my wife, told me, Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. They are spitting in his face. I said to her, if I do so, you will lose your husband. She replied, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. <laughs> we'll talk about that afterwards as well, my love. <laughs> then I arose... And I spoke to this Congress, praising not the murderers of Christians, but Jesus Christ, stating that our loyalty is due first to him. The speeches at this Congress were broadcast, and the whole country could hear proclaimed from the rostrum of the communist parliament the message of Christ. Afterwards, my wife and I paid a terrible price, but it was worth it. 
They overcame. They overcame as they heard God's commission to not stand under the intimidation, but to stand up and speak out. And you are not alone, and I am not alone. God has called people across the centuries. This is what it says of Jeremiah. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. But I said, this is Jeremiah speaking, but Lord God, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you. You are not alone in the sense that many have gone before, but you're also not alone in the sense that God is with you. That's his promise, that he doesn't send you out. He's the one who's picked out Jeremiah, and he's the one who goes with him, and it's the same for you and I. The Logos, the one who holds the universe in his mouth, who created out of nothing, puts his words in your mouth. He is with you. He is with me. That's the first thing, I think, that will help us break out of the silence, that will break the spirit of intimidation, is realizing that we stand in history with many before us, and with God before us. And the second thing is this, you must be prepared. 1 Peter 3 says this, Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. Always be prepared, so Peter says, to give an answer be prepared to speak. Have you thought through, how would I give an answer to someone, to various questions? Have you thought about, how would I share my story, my, the testimony of my journey to faith in Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning? How would I st- share that story in three minutes or in ten minutes if someone asked me? Could I give an answer to someone who asked me? I, I loved uh, one of our guys in our, our youth group. He came up to me uh, once and he said, I, 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 I got asked this question at school and I think, you know, I didn't give a great answer. How would you answer that question? So I said, well, this is kind of how I would frame the answer. This is kind of things I think you should help people to, to think about. And he was like, okay, he was, you could tell he was kind of mentally taking notes. Well, Caroline got to hear his answer in another setting some weeks later. And she said, he gave a brilliant answer. And I love not that he got the information for me, but I love that he got prepared. I didn't care who he asked. It was about he got prepared. He thought it through. You know, have you ever given a duff question, answer to a question and afterwards? Often we think, oh, well, I'll just, this is not for me. He didn't think that. Instead, he thought, I'm going to think about this. Next time I get asked that question, because I know I will, I'm going to think about how I give a better answer than I do. Be prepared. Peter says, be prepared in your spirit. Like Steve and I often will walk along or we'll chat and we'll say, how would you answer that question? And I'll say, and he'll, he'll, say, he'll say how he would answer it. And we, we wrestle these things through because we're getting prepared to answer these questions. It's time to be prepared. God is with us. Be prepared. And you know, uh, the, the preparation out there, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who you know, he speaks nationally for his company in front of the news with journalists. And I said, what kind of preparation did you have? He said, well, he said, my boss told me just whoever I'm speaking to, imagine them naked. I was like, is that helping? He's like, no, not really. <laughs> I mean, be prepared. We've got to get prepared and we've got to do a little bit better than that. And I would say, don't do that. It's unpleasant. <laughs> we've got to do better than that. We've got to get prepared because the issues that he's speaking of for his company are important, but the issues that we have to speak out about as followers of Christ are life-changing. Yeah. 
We've got to get prepared. And this is the third thing. It's really what I want to focus on. You can use the power of questions. Voltaire once said this, don't judge a person by the answers, judge them by their questions. You know, we all like imperatives, don't we? We like commanding statements. Do this, don't do that, do the other. You should do this. We love to give advice like that. And as we've seen, answers are important. Advice is important. But actually, when you think about it, I've realized as I thought about this stuff that when you come to God, God asks a surprising number of questions. He asks a surprising number of questions. Like, for example, when Adam and Eve sin, the first thing that God does is ask them a question. Where are you? The first thing he says to Eve is, what have you done? He asks questions. When Job stands before God and confronts God with how his life is a mess and it's all gone wrong, and how could God allow it? God just simply asks him a whole load of questions. He doesn't even really make many statements. He just asks a load of questions of Job, and at the end of it, Job just falls on his face. He's like, who am I to question you? God just loves to ask questions. When you look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, think it through the context of this is Jesus who knows everything, who has access to the information of the universe. He asks 300 questions. 183 questions are asked of him, and he only actually directly answers three of them. (laughs) The point is this. Jesus saw something in question asking that sometimes I think we miss. Yes, we need to be prepared to give an answer, but we're so panicked, I think, so often, what keeps us in silence is, I won't be able to give the right answer. I wonder whether there's a deeper thing going on. I wonder whether we need to think about, can I give the right question? <laughs> is there something about questions that will help us in this whole thing? Why did Jesus ask so many questions? I think questions help us really to understand what's going on with people. They help us really to understand. Proverbs says this, A fool finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in sharing his own opinions. (laughs) Questions help us to really understand. I I, I had a lovely story of a mum. Little Johnny comes to her. He's age seven. Says, Mum, Mum, where did I come from? She's like, gosh, she's seven. I wasn't ready for this. And uh, But I've kind of done the mummy's tummy thing, and he's clearly not happy with that anymore. Okay, so she launches into the birds and the bees. She does the whole thing, and little Johnny's age seven eyes are getting wider and wider. And at the end of it, she says, so now do you understand where you came from? He's like, no, Henry said he came from Birmingham. I just wondered where I came from. <laughs> Questions help us really understand what's going on with people. Whereas if we just jump in, sometimes we miss that. Questions get to the heart. You see, this is the thing. I think statements can change behavior, but I think questions penetrate to the heart. We're not just about changing behavior. And Jesus was not just about changing behavior. He wanted to change the heart. And it's questions that expose what's going on in the heart. And so that's why I think Jesus used loads and loads of questions. Questions cause people to think. Questions can even provide a hunger for people to get the answers. Sometimes you have to hear people's questions and their thoughts. That's what brilliantly happens on Alpha, the the course. The first six weeks are all about, what's your questions? What's your questions? Before any answers are really given, it's all about questions. Because sometimes people need to be prepared to hear an answer. And asking questions can help get people to that place. 
The point, as I said, is this. Maybe instead of worrying so much about having to give the answer, and I've said that's important, but maybe we also need to think deeply about what's a great question. <laughs> We're faced all the time with what, what answers can we give to our generation, but maybe we also need to think about what questions do we need to ask our generation? I think Jesus would be thinking through that. He, and, and, this is, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. Uh, as I've looked at this over the last 18 months and read books and read through the Gospels again, through the lens of what questions did Jesus ask, you can categorize them into numbers of different categories. I'll, I'll give you six different categories, but there's loads more. And they are profound when you think about them. The, the first one is, is this, questions that show where a behavior is going. Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? That's what Jesus says. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Matthew 6. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Those are deep questions. <laughs> those are de- it would be very uncomfortable to be a disciple of Jesus and have him ask you those questions. They are deep, deep questions. And they're all about, they show where a behavior is going. And I found questions that illustrate and and probe where a behavior is going are really powerful. They're really powerful for parenting. You know, one of the questions that we often ask as parents is, is is that the kind of person that you want to become? When you're doing this, is that the kind of person you become? Or is that the type of family that that you're wanting to build? Helping our kids see that, that actually they are part of building a family as well. And is this the kind of family that they are that they are wanting to to build? Or another one is this, if you choose to do that, what will happen? It's a great question. Because often we do things without thinking through where it's going to go. What, what's going to happen? If you choose to do that, what is going to happen? And another great question is, what will happen if you do nothing? Because there, there, there is an apathy and a lethargy that just gets on our souls. And a great question to penetrate that is, what will happen if you do nothing? Because very often when we think about it, it's worse to do nothing than to do something. Instead of being paralyzed with, oh, shall I do A, B, and C? If D is do nothing and it's worse than A, B, and C, well, you might as well just do one of them. What will happen if you do nothing is a great question. Questions that show where a behavior is, is going. Jesus uses them all the time. I think we need to become masters at learning the right questions. The second type of uh, 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 questions that he uses are questions that expose value judgments. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they, Matthew 6? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say to a lame man, get up and walk? I mean, these are profound questions, aren't they? And even that, the, the, the forgiven lame man, get up and walk, I mean, that's deep. Because when you, you want to answer, well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but then you think, well, how easy is that, actually? <laughs> And how can sins be forgiven? And, and then you start to think, gosh, if Jesus was the one who forgave sins, then he's got this, and he did that, which actually is more difficult than to, wow, hang on a minute, this gives me a whole conversation about healing. And just that one question shows you more about forgiveness and more about healing than any number of statements would do. Questions that expose value judgments are really key. You know, Ben Shapiro, one of the he's very controversial, very outspoken uh, critic of abortion. But one of the questions he asks people is this: What happens in the birth canal that turns a fetus with no rights into a baby with full human rights? What happens? 
And I've never heard anyone give him an answer to that question. And it's not that he's being unkind to those who've had abortions or been through that. He's not saying that, but he's saying we've got to ask these questions. These are deep questions that our society needs to think about and to answer. The third group of questions Jesus asked is questions that expose the true root of behavior. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye but pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, Jesus asked. He replied to them, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Questions that expose the root of behavior are powerful. Because so often we do the things that we do without thinking about why we do the things that we do. Simon Sinek exposes it so brilliantly, doesn't he? And his, his, uh, his thought on start with why. The why is so important. So asking the why is absolutely critical. Why do you say that? Why did I say that? Why do I think that? Where does all this come from? Is, in, is really, really important. Why do we do that? A guy called Mitch Ditkoff, he uh, gives a brilliant story of the Lincoln Memorial in, in Washington, D.C. And he said there was a, this problem in that the, um, the, the birds were pooping all over the memorial. <laughs> and it was just filthy. And so they're forever having to clean it. But the detergent used to clean it was damaging the memorial. So they had this real conundrum. And they were spending thousands and thousands of dollars cleaning this thing. And it was just making it worse. And the birds weren't stopping. And then somebody asked, Why? Well, why are the birds pooping on Lincoln Memorial? And someone said, well, that's what birds do. They poop on memorials. They just, I don't know, what else do they do, I guess? And they said, well, why do they poop on this one more than other ones? They thought about that, and then they realized, oh, it's because of the spiders. There's so many spiders on this memorial. They love, birds love eating spiders. It's because of the spiders. So then someone asked, well, why are there so many spiders? And they did some more thinking and they realized, oh, it's because of the midges. This memorial is covered in, in, in nests of midges that are just everywhere. And the spiders love the midges, so they come to feast on the midges. And that's why there are so many birds, because the birds then come and eat the spiders. And that's why this memorial has got more poop than most other memorials. Then someone asked, well, why are the midges here? <laughs> and then they realized midges like a certain type of light just before dusk to, you know, get it on. <laughs> for want of a better expression. Midge nookie happens best in just the right lighting. And the Lincoln Memorial lights came on just at dusk, creating the perfect environment for midges, which created the imperfect environment for the spiders, which created the perfect environment for the birds, hence the poop. The solution? Turn the lights on an hour later. The midges are like, we're off, this is no fun. The spiders followed them, as did the birds. Problem solved. <laughs> Some of you, all you're going to remember from the rest of this message is Midge Nookie, but that's okay. The point is this, and this is the point that Mitch Dickel makes so brilliantly. He says, all they asked was the question, why, five times. Why, 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 until they got to the answer. What about thinking about the problems that we face in society and the problems in our own lives and asking that question? So mums... Your son who, or daughter when they were five in the car and they just kept asking it, instead of telling them to shut up, you should have told them, <laughs> you're right, you're a genius. we just got to keep asking why. Why is powerful. Questions that get to the root of things, we need to learn how to ask them. Questions that probe, what do what people actually want? That, that's another whole category which was fascinating to look at. Jesus often asks people what they want. He doesn't assume what they want as we would so often do. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? 
Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? Even to a blind man, Jesus says, do you, what do you want me to do? You think it's obvious. But Jesus asked the question, what do you actually want? And Caroline and I learned this powerfully when we were doing a marriage counseling a couple of years ago because uh, one of the things that the guy did was he just said to Caroline, what do you want? And she kind of, you know, after all this, that, and the other, and all this, and he cut all that away. He's like, well, so this is what you want. And he said to me, well, Simon, what do you want? And I cut, you know, after he'd kind of chopped it all back, I was like, well, that's what you want. Well, that's what she wants. That's what you want. Why don't you both work on getting as much of that as possible together? We're like, oh. <laughs> what do you actually want? Because so often we cover what we really want with all sorts of other stuff. All sorts of, yeah, but he said and she said and ifs, buts and the others. And ultimately, driving back to what do you actually want is really, really key. And Jesus asked loads of questions about that because I think he's trying to expose what's in the heart. Sometimes I think when we pray, we hide what we're praying behind loads of other stuff. And if God were there, I think he'd say to us, what, what do you actually want and why do you want it? Sometimes I think that's a key thing to think about. Questions that expose faulty logic. There's another whole group of questions. Jesus was asked and accused of being driven by the devil, that he was empowered by the devil. And, and so he said this, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? He doesn't even answer the accusation. He just asks a question. He says, well, if, if Satan's empowering me and I'm the one driving out Satan... It's not really such a good, good idea, is it? How could that kingdom stand? He asks a question that just penetrates to the heart of the logic, which was so faulty in their reasoning. Don't you see that whatever enters, a, enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? They got all kind of confused about food rituals and all of that thing. What was the point of them? Jesus asked a question right into the heart of it. What's the difference between the spiritual and the practical? He exposes the whole thing. You know, as we'll see over the coming months, Christians are often put on the spot on our views on sexuality and asked difficult questions. A guy was telling me recently just the sorts of questions he's asked at work about this. Now, with the right spirit, I think here's a good question to ask when pushed on these issues. If you'll answer my question, then I'll answer your question is any, kind of is any kind of sexual activity sinful? Ask that question of people who are pushing you on sexuality. If you'll answer my question and I'll answer your question, is any kind of sexual activity sinful? Because there's only actually three answers to that question. No, no kind of sexual activity is sinful. Okay, let's talk about that. Really? Incest is not sinful? Bestiality is not sinful? Are you, are you sure? You can pretty easily get people to realize that they don't really believe that no kind of sexual activity is sinful. Second, that would open up a whole conversation. Second answer would be yes. Some sexual activity is sinful and then easily opens up a conversation of then who gets to decide what's sinful and not sinful? That's the cause of it. That's the, that's the root of it. Who gets to decide? You know, if you even understand the concept of sin, then you must have some belief in God. So what does God say about this is the natural outcome. The only other third option is, well, I don't believe in sin. And if someone's asking you a question as to, about the sinfulness of sexuality, but they themselves don't believe in sin, well, how, how can they ask you about sin? Why do they care what you think about sin if they don't believe in sin in the first place? I'm not giving you this question as a way to 
kind of uh, mean-spiritedly push someone back into a box. But I think it does expose what's really going on when people ask us about human sexuality and our beliefs on it. It will expose what's in people's hearts if we're able to ask questions back rather than feeling put on the spot and under pressure about what we feel that the Bible teaches about these things. Rabbi Zacharias says this, on one occasion I ran up against this very question from a news reporter. I just finished lecturing at a university and she had very graciously stayed through the entire lecture, even though she had other pressing engagements. After the lecture was over, she was walking beside me and said, can I ask you a question that really troubles me about Christians? I was glad to oblige. Why, she asked, are Christians openly against racial discrimination, but at the same time discriminate against certain times of sexual behavior? I said this to her, we are against racial discrimination because one's ethnicity is sacred. You cannot violate the sacredness of one's race. For the same reason, we are against the altering of God's pattern and purposes for sexuality. Sex is sacred in the eyes of God and ought not to be violated. So my question to you in return is why do you treat race as sacred but desacralize sexuality? She said, I've never thought about it in that way. <laughs> and it opened up a whole interesting conversation for them. So questions that expose faulty logic and help people to think about what's really behind their questions or their concerns is pretty key. And the last thing is this, questions that push people to think about Jesus. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus asked loads of questions about him. <laughs> who am I? And actually, I found personally, that's a really important point to get to. Because ultimately, who people think Jesus is, is absolutely critical to everything else. Everything hangs actually on that question. Who is Jesus? Because if he is the son of God as we say he is, and if he died to our, for our sins as we say he did, and if he raised from the dead as we say he has, then what he thinks about stuff really matters. <laughs> In fact, it matters more than anybody else. And so we should spend our time studying and learning from the words of Jesus and the things that he believes should be the things that we believe. If he is not, then why do we care about anything that he said? <laughs> you can't have it both ways. So who is Jesus is absolutely critical. And learning to ask people, what do you think about Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? And not coming straight against them with some kind of boiled up answer, but genuinely engaging people in discussion. Talk to me about Jesus. Because very often you'll find that the things that people reject about Christianity are things that have happened to them or they've seen that you also would reject and aren't genuine following of Jesus. People want to see something of Jesus. And when they do see him as he is, very often they follow him because there's no one else more wonderful. So often we get driven to think, I've got to have the answers before I speak up. I think it's important. I think more important is this. What are the great questions? What are the great questions? If Jesus were here today, and he is in you and in me, he would not be so much thinking about what statements can I make to this generation. He would be thinking about what questions can I ask to this generation. Because statements will change behavior, but questions will expose the heart and cause real lasting change. And of course, we've got to be careful with our tone when asking questions, 
You know, a great question can be ruined by a horrible tone. <laughs> Peter says, be prepared to give an answer, but do it with what? Gentleness and respect. So learning to ask great questions, but with gentleness and respect, I think is the, one of the keys to breaking the silence and for the church to stand up in our day. Questions can be misused. You know, sometimes people drill people with questions. If you've ever been with somebody who just drills you with question after question. <laughs> sometimes people use questions as a defense. I'm sure we've all done that. You don't want to be asked a question, so you ask one in return. <laughs> we have to be careful with that. It's time to make statements and say what you really feel. We're not, this is not just a defensive exercise. But asked rightly with the right spirit, I think we've underplayed the power of questions. And I think Jesus would disciple us today and say, come follow me and learn from me. And think deeply like that young man I told you about who thought deeply about his answer to a question and went away and got prepared. You are not alone. People have gone before you and God is with you. You must be prepared. We must get ourselves prepared because this is a day not to stay silent but for the church to speak up. And we can use the power of questions, just one of the ways that I think we can get prepared and get ready. Let me just take a moment and turn to your neighbour. What stood out from you for you from this morning? Do you feel this kind of spirit of silence coming on you? What do you feel like God's spoken to you about this morning, about breaking that silence? Why don't we stand together? Let's pray, shall we? Caroline, who's not faint of heart at all, <laughs> but she doesn't like scary movies, is going to pray for us. Let's pray. Yeah. 
When Simon was speaking this morning, I just found it hard to stay in my chair. And I just feel like there's a number of people in the room who um, have um, been maybe feeling intimidated, uh, scared of the sound of their own voice. That's totally been me. I actually met with a friend a couple of weeks ago to pray about that because I want deeper freedom. And I, I, wanna, I want to step out and stand up and speak up um, the things that God's put in my heart. Um, but I feel like there's some people in the room who are feeling um, have been in a season of feeling that intimidation and um, and just looking at um, whatever it is that you feel like you need to say and it looks like a giant and it looks massive and you've been feeling intimidated. And I feel like there's also, maybe it's the same people, but there's also people in the room who are, who are feeling as Simon was sitting there just like burning. I know, I know what I need to say and I know who I need to say it to. Um, so I just especially want to pray for all those people. So if that's you, just put your hands out in front of you this morning and just um, connect with the Father. Father, I just thank you that, um, that Jesus told us that um, if we want to inherit the kingdom, we've got to do it like children. And so, Father, we come to you this yes. morning as children, trusting that you're our good Father and yes. you have everything we need. Trusting, Jesus, that, that you, you won't let us down, God, that when we put our hope in you, we won't be disappointed, Father. We come to you as children, recognizing that you have all of our resources and we're dependent on you, Jesus. We come to you as children, recognizing that if, um, if we want to have any love, if we want to have a loving tone and a soft heart to connect with people, Jesus, that we've first got to be filled up with love from you, that we can only love. We love because you loved us first. So, Father, this morning, we just, um, we just ask you to come and fill us with your love, Jesus. Fill us with your love, God. Fill us with your love. Would we be so compelled by love, Jesus? That when we look at the giant in front of us, Father, that fear would be washed away, Father. We just pray, Father, fill us with your love. Flood us with your love, Jesus. We pray that our, um, our words, Father, would be just dripping in love. That people would, would be so drawn to you in us, Jesus. To your love in us, that you would be absolutely irresistible. And Father, we just um, pray that you would give us courage as we stand up to speak, God. We pray that we would not agree with the enemy. We would not agree with that um, intimidation, Father, but we would be filled with courage to stand up and speak and use uh, the voice. Nobody else has a voice like mine on the planet. And that's the same for every person in this room, God. Give us courage. Give us courage to speak and create with our voices like you create with your voice, Father. We're created in your image, Father. Help us to create life with our voices. In the name of Jesus.